This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 336. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, joined today by Mr. Producer-in-Chief, extraordinaire, multi-talented individual, Matthew Marister. What is up, Mr. Riley Bowman? Hey, dude. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to be back on the show after yeah. a, a two-episode hiatus. We gave you a break, and then you know <laughs> we figured we'd bring you back. And just so everybody knows, okay, you know, I actually got a message from a couple of people, uh, you know, like, where, where, where are you? What's going on? Are you okay? You know, sort of thing. And so Tuesday, I was out at the range filming for our upcoming video course where we're working on getting launched and released. Uh, it'll be a, a online streaming training video, plus also we'll have a DVD option as well, depending on what you prefer. And so uh, a bunch of filming I had to do out at the range and just with juggling schedules and also weather, you know, making sure we have, you know, good, good filming days for weather. Uh, yeah. So Tuesday and Wednesday last week, I spent all day at the range filming Thursday. I was planning on being on the show, but had a, had a, I had a, a personal issue come up, nothing major, nothing, you know, terrible or scary or anything like that. Just some business I had to take care of that I was not expecting, but everything is totally a okay. So all of you that were worried and wondering where I was, just know I was doing good things and it just required me to miss the podcast. So I apologize for that. Uh, we've got a bunch of you watching on Facebook today. So appreciate uh, those of you joining us on Facebook. For all the rest of you listening to the audio only, thanks for joining us as well. Uh, today is our news edition of the podcast. And actually today is a combined industry and legislative news episode because we haven't done either one of those uh, this month or actually in a while. Uh, well, we haven't done the legislative one, I think, in a while. So today we're, we've got uh, some some really uh, important legislative updates we want to talk about. We've we got stuff coming out of Washington State. We've got some things, uh, some updates from the ATF. Uh, California has had some things going into effect this, this month uh, related to ammunition. And uh, yeah, so some really important legislative updates we want to update everybody on. Some good news too, you know, some, some good stuff happening out of South Dakota. And then we got some general interest industry news. I think some of these stories we're going to talk about today are really interesting. So you're going to want to stick around and listen to it all. Uh, we got some stuff out of New Zealand we're going to talk about. we got some stuff about the ATF. I already mentioned that. Uh, the NRA, another three-letter acronym. So yeah, we'll talk about that and stuff that's going on at the NRA. That's a bunch of, bunch of drama over there at the NRA. We're going to talk about that. So yeah. Show stay- problemas. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. Uh, also, today's episode made possible and brought to you by our special flash sale on our targets. Uh, these are our, I call them our peel and stick targets. Uh, apparently, maybe somebody out there has that, I don't know, copyrighted or trademarked or something. Who knows? You literally peel and stick them on a target. Okay. They're really great targets. Uh, so actually, these are our they are adhesive reactive targets and uh, available in our store this month. You can go to concealcarry.com forward slash July heat, J U L Y H E A T. So go to concealcarry.com forward slash July heat. If you want some of the best peel and stick, you know, reactive targets, meaning you shoot them and they 
give you a little bit of color, right? So like you can see where your hits are a lot better, stuff like that. Really cool targets. They stick really well in high temperatures, low temperatures, whether it's a little bit humid or whatever, you know, they, they do a really great job. So the adhesive is actually the key on those targets. It's really, really good stuff. We worked really hard to put together these targets and have them be high quality, but also low cost. And the cool thing is you can order them in quantities like 2,500, 2550, 75, and 100, I think, actually. A bunch of different variations and are really, really, really reasonably priced for uh, for any of those quantities. So use the coupon code, though, July Heat. So you're going to go to concealedcarry.com forward slash July Heat and use the coupon code July Heat. And I believe it saves you 20%, which is pretty cool. All right. And today's other episode sponsor is concealedcarry.com's training classes. You can find a full list of our schedule and our classes available at class.concealedcarry.com. I want to highlight the fact that actually Jacob and I have a couple classes we're teaching together here in the Colorado area. So if you're in Colorado or if you care enough to travel into Denver uh, slash front, the front range area of Colorado, we'd love to have you. And we've got a class coming up on August 10th. This is our guardian pistol class actually the guardian essentials portion that's the kind of the entry level guardian pistol course so we hope that maybe you'll come join us on august 10th 8 30 a.m is when it starts guardian essentials pistol that's right here uh, it's actually we, we've changed ranges where we host our classes from uh, the west side of denver to kind of the north side of denver it's about a, about an hour north of denver um we also have our triple guardian that's where we teach all three the level one level two level three courses guardian essentials guardian standards and guardian breakthrough all three back to back uh september 20th through the 22nd again here in colorado jacob and i teaching those again both together so so come and see us take class uh we promise you you're going to really enjoy those, those classes matthew just taught uh the courses out in uh indiana right mm-hmm. Yeah, it went really well. There's a r- really good feedback. So if you're going to head out to the class, it's a it's a good it's a good class. Yeah, man. So anyway, go to class.concealedcarry.com, and not only can you find info and how to sign up for those Guardian pistol courses, but you can find all of our available courses available in all kinds of places, not just ones that are taught by me and Jacob uh, or Matthew, but we've got instructors in a bunch of different states, like twenty something states. And uh, classes going on every weekend, and many classes also going on during the weeknights. Many of these, of course, are concealed carry classes, but we also have NRA basic pistol courses, uh, various tactical rifle courses. Uh, we actually just got a new instructor on board, uh, Robert Butler, down in Colorado Springs, doing some really cool stuff. He's got a lot. He's got a great calendar of, of classes lined up down there, so you might check him out and give him some love as well. Um, all right, so let's get into our first news story, shall we? For sure. All right, Hawaii. Governor Ige signs anti-gun legislation. And no surprise here. We knew this was going to most likely happen. Uh, So on July 9th, Governor David Ige signed these final anti-gun bills. And uh, let's see, Senate Bill 600 will raise the minimum age to transport a firearm into the state to the age of 21. So there's no... 
you know, exemption or anything. For, it doesn't matter the gun. You have to be 21 to transport a firearm into the state. So imagine, and I don't even know if there's a, an exception for military members, but imagine, Matthew, I mean, this, this would, you, you would understand this perspective. You are an active duty, uh, say, Marine, okay? And you are assigned, you know, to, I don't know, what, what, what do we have in Hawaii that's, uh, that's, that is a Marine station or base? Well, there, there's a Navy base out there. So sure, sure. what do we have there? What, what is the name of the base there? Uh, Come on, Matthew. I, I don't, I can't remember. Sure. Sure. Surely you spent, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just teasing you. Uh, we stopped there on the way back on Westpac a couple of times. So yeah. Yeah. See, I, 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 figured, I figured you'd know. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I dump a lot of information that's useless because my brain's so small. I can only, can only fill so much stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the same way, man. That's why, you know, let's see. Naval Station Pearl Harbor. Well, that would make sense. Yeah, well, of course, but there's, there's a... <laughs> Everybody knows about Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I can't remember the actual... There's another one? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And then, uh, so let's just imagine that you get, you, you know, you get sent or you're stationed or you're spending time as military active duty personnel in Hawaii and you're 20 years old, right? And you have a rifle, even if it's a 22 rifle, like anywhere else in America, you should be able to take that and go and not have to worry about a thing. But Hawaii, uh-uh, not the case anymore. Bunch of BS. Senate Bill 1466 uh, will create gun violence protective orders, or, or also known as extreme risk protection orders, also known as red flag laws. Uh, so this will be issued not because a person has been convicted of a crime or adjudicated mentally ill, but instead on third-party allegations. Uh, this is a concern we've seen from a number of states that have passed these red flag laws where they allow certain categories of individuals, some are broader than others, where those people can essentially report you, file a extreme risk protection order against you, and without due process, you will have your firearms remanded to the state, to the local police you know, department or whoever it is that comes and confiscates those. And then at some later time, you'll have a hearing. So we don't need to go down, you know, down into the weeds on that. We've talked about red flag laws a number of times. Just know that that is now the law of the land in Hawaii, as well as this restriction where you have to be over, you have to be the age of 21 or older to transport firearms into the state. Yeah, not cool. Not cool at all. Good news though, out of South Dakota, constitutional constitutional or as it's known, permitless carry went into effect, I believe on July 1st. The yeah, keep in mind, we, we've been collecting these stories for a few weeks. So some of these are uh, a few weeks old. And a lot of states, when they pass new laws, they put them to go into effect on July 1st. I don't know why that is necessarily, but it happens all the time. And so on July 1st of, the, of this month, so earlier this month, constitutional carry became law of the land in officially, where meaning it is now actually officially practiced in South Dakota. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty cool, right? I mean, obviously they kept their um, permit process or program in effect because, you know, for um, reciprocity reasons and things like that. But it's an awesome, awesome thing that uh, now they don't have to get a permit if if you want to carry a firearm and you know, legal law-abiding citizen, go ahead. There you go. Of course, you know, our stance here at concealedcarry.com is always that 
we value training and we are big advocates of training and we, we tell everybody that we know, please go get training and don't just stop after one class. Keep going. Take, take more classes. Take at least one class a year. Uh, if you carry a gun for self-defense, if you're truly serious about defending your life or the life of loved ones or anybody else for that matter with a gun, I promise you, <laughs> uh, you, you need training because I need training. Matthew needs training. We all need training. Like, because it, it, it's a perishable skill. Yeah. Uh, it, yes, you might go to the range, you know, once a week or however often you might go to the range and do some practice. And that's good. And that's important too. And that's part of it. But training is also, I mean, it, it's an ongoing thing. It should never stop. It should never end. Yeah. I mean, training is different than practice, right? You can't practice and learn new skills. You'd have to train or, or learn them and then practice them, right? So if you're just practicing the skills you've already learned, then you're not growing. You, you might be getting better at those course right. skills, but you're missing some of the other stuff. Yeah. You know, and how we define things here at concealedcarry.com is, is it really, I, I kind of teach it as like a, uh, almost like a triangle, like a pyramid of, of sorts, right? So where you have, you know, the, the, there's three aspects of getting better, you know, three, three things, three tools, three ways that we learn new skills and practice them and, and, and get better at them. And number one is through education, through learning, which can be done through a variety of ways, right? It, it can be done watching videos. It can be done reading books. It can be done listening to podcasts where you're learning new information. You're taking that in. You're internalizing it, thinking about it, okay? And then there's practice, and practice is good. In practice, we practice those things we generally already know. Uh, we might try practicing things that we learned somewhere else, not necessarily in a training course, but maybe we saw in a video. Maybe we, maybe you heard it mentioned in a podcast. You go, oh, I'm going to try that next time at the range. You could do that, and that, that would be considered practice. But training is defined, and actually, if you look up the dictionary, it actually talks about how, you know, training, there, there is a teacher, okay, there is – somebody who's doing the, the, who's doing the training, somebody who is a trainer. Okay. So it's, it's guided learning. Okay. It's, it's teaching skills and skill sets that is taught to you by someone that is a guide, that is a teacher, that is a, a you know, a, a professional. And so that's kind of how we think of it and, and, and describe it here. Now, can you learn new skills and, you know, things that you haven't learned in a training class? Can you internalize that, think about it, start working on it, practice it, and develop some of those skills sometimes? Yes, that is definitely possible. But what you don't get when you learn things on your own is you don't get a third party that is knowledgeable, that is, that is experienced, that is professional, that is observing you and can give you instant feedback and go, hey, Riley, by the way, I noticed as you were doing, you know, whatever thing, you know, as you initiated a movement, as you were drawing your gun and beginning to move, that you did this weird little thing. Like you might consider doing this because this is more efficient as opposed to this, you know, say one thing we talk about when, when we're moving is we don't want to like drop our, our, our shoulders and our body down uh, and then move. Okay. Because what we're doing is we're actually wasting time as we shift our position, as we lower ourselves and then move. Uh, so that's actually less efficient than if we just simply move. <laughs> and uh, so that would be an example. Like I wouldn't notice that I'm doing that unless I had somebody watching and could tell me that. So that, that's the value of having a trainer. Anyway, we don't need to go into the weeds on that either, but get training. But also at the same time, our stance is 
constitutional carry is very good. It's a good thing. Yep. All for right. sure. I saw something recently too, Matthew, that, that was like talking about all these constitutional carry states. And uh, it, it, you know, it, it basically was pointing out that we still see the numbers of concealed carry permittees climbing. Okay. Mm-hmm. This was on a nationwide basis. Uh, but uh, that's even while we have more and more states that are adding to the list of constitutional carry states. Right. And I think that people, maybe they hear, hey, I can carry now without a permit. But, you know, so they actually start to carry their gun and maybe they start to take it seriously and they get somewhat down that path. And then one day they wake up and they go, who? Like, there's certain things I can't do without a permit. Like, I can't carry in this neighboring state because I don't have reciprocity. Right. And so, like, I think constitutional carry maybe is a tool sometimes, not for everybody, but for some people, I think is a tool to kind of wake them up to the idea of concealed carry and uh, encourage actually getting training and also obtaining permits. Yeah. And, and I also would, would um, add to that is that um, even while states are moving towards constitutional carry in Ohio, you know, they're, they're, we're really pushing for that. Um, some instructors get really worried about that, right? They're like, Oh, you know, I won't be, be able to do my concealed carry classes and things like that. But I think um, people are still going to seek out training. And the thing about it is when the state kind of requires a specific um, curriculum to be taught for concealed carry, it may not always be the best curriculum, right? It might just be kind of a watered down thing that checks some boxes. But I think if you allow kind of the, I don't want to say free market, but if you allow the instructors to put together really good entry level concealed carry classes, they might surpass even what is you know, required by law. So you, you end up with a, a better trained average everyday carrier, I think. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Let's go now to California. On July 1st, lead-free ammunition required for all hunting became officially the law. Yeah. Um, you know, lead exposure particularly to shooters is a real risk of shooting, right? That's why we should uh, wash our hands thoroughly after we're done shooting, why we should avoid eating and drinking and and handling anything that might come in contact with our our mouths or our eyes or, you know, other open parts of our bodies. Uh, Because we want to, you know, lead doesn't, lead can absorb through skin if it's there for a long period of time, but uh, we definitely want to avoid getting it into the orifices of our, of our body. And uh, so lead exposure for shooters is a real thing. And by the way, removing lead from ammunition reduces that risk in a big way. That's a good thing. Um, there's this concern that there's all this lead that is fired during hunting seasons and at gun ranges. And can it cause problems? I, I suppose. Uh, I don't know. I, I think that the science is not even close to being settled in that regard. But in California, there's been this movement for some time. They've tried to get this passed in years past, where they force hunters to not use any lead ammunition, lead-containing ammunition for any hunting period whatsoever. And I don't. While let me let me try to phrase this carefully. While ammunition manufacturers, bullet manufacturers, have made huge strides and great progress in developing ammunition that expands and performs very well in hunting situations without having to contain lead, 
Because lead, keep in mind, has been the the medium that for decades, uh, really more than a century, I mean, ever since the beginning of the advent of firearms, lead has been the primary projectile. And especially with expanding ammunition, it does the job of it deforms and turns into this expanded round, which creates, you know, larger wound channels and all that, which is helpful when we're trying to make clean, humane kills for those of you that are hunters. Uh, The same is true even with shooting humans for self-defense. Lead-based ammunition, I think, still plays a really important role because it works very well and has done so for a long time. So forcing, though, hunters to use lead-free ammunition, I, I don't think I really agree with that because I think that a, that it, uh, it's, like, it's, it's like anything else, Matthew, where we take a law and we pass a law and we apply a law completely broadly, universally, across all situations, all people, all, situ- uh, all circumstances, and assume that, you know, like this is a good law and it's going to do all these wonderful things. But there might be situations where we don't want, I mean, for instance, uh, I don't know. I mean, could it, is it, is it possible? I understand that the law says, and I'm asking you this question, Matthew. I want, I want to hear your take on this. <laughs> I understand the law says hunters must use certified non-lead ammunition, which by the way is going to be more expensive too. And that's the other thing. Right. Forcing people to buy something that's more expensive. That's, that's a bunch of BS too. But so hunters will be required to use certified non-lead ammunition. Here's a question. Could you be charged in violation of this statute if you carried a hunting-style handgun? Like, let's suppose I carry a 44 Magnum revolver loaded with hollow points, lead hollow points, for a defensive purpose. And I end up in a situation where I end up having to shoot and kill a bear that's attacking me. Yeah. I, I mean, by the, by the way it's written, it would seem that you would because there's no exceptions. It's just if you are a hunter, you are hunting, um, and what do they consider hunting? You know, I, I, I mean, we would say there's a difference between hunting and a defensive use, but to the average layperson, you know, they're probably, you shot an animal, you were hunting it, you know? So I don't know. I, I get where you're coming from with this. Um, I, I see a lot on the other side. Um, there's a big concern about um, hunters shooting animals and then not um, actually, you know, uh, harvesting them. So the, the animals are left out there and then scavengers come eat the animal and they're dying mainly. I think there's a mainly with birds. Um, some, some protected birds are eating the, the meat and then ingesting this lead. And then they're finding that they're dying or, or having these birth defects and stuff. So the populations are hurting. I don't know, you know, how, if it's directly related to lead or not, I kind of see that if we can do a little bit, I think most hunters, you know, they're, 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 they're part of the ecology, right? Like they like nature. So I think a lot of hunters would probably say, you know what, if it's going to help the environment, then, you know, and the animals and I'm for it, maybe, you know, I don't know, would it be applicable in every environment? Maybe not because, you know, maybe out in California, they have protected condors and they have protected 
this bird and that, but um, I don't know. I, it, it's, it's one of those things, right? Like how free are we? How, how, how much is, do you want to be regulated? You know, um, like I said, I think most yeah. are pretty, pretty, you know, in touch with the, with the nature and stuff. So I don't know. Should it be yep. mandated? I don't know. If you ask California legislators, it should. So. What, what what I'm most interested in, you know, whether it's for self-defense purposes or for hunting purposes is, is in the, the, the rifle or gun ammunition combination, right? right? That is most effective for getting the job done. And so I have no problem at all with, and I definitely know hunters. I know personally hunters that use lead-free ammunition because they choose to do that for, you know, a right. lot of these reasons that you're, you're talking about. That's totally cool. Like whatever. And, and like I said, there's been great strides made in ammunition technology to develop lead-free bullets that perform very well. And so, uh, you know, such as bullets from like Berger and uh, uh, a few others out there. So uh, Barnes would be another one uh, doing a really good job making good quality bullets without lead. Uh, but again, like maybe in my particular caliber, a lead-free Barnes bullet doesn't perform as well as, say, a more traditional lead-based bullet, right? right? For my particular chosen caliber, maybe I have found through experience that shooting some certain animal, you know, it's it, I get better, reliable performance, a more clean, humane kill if I'm using a more traditional bullet versus one of the newer, you know, lead-free bullets. I don't know. Just, it's just a thought. And that's why I hate when the government feels like it has to get in the way and legislate. Education, again, I have no problem with that. If we wanted to have some sort of initiative to educate hunters, hey, by the way, lead-free bullets, better. Right. You know, better for the environment, whatever. Like, okay, cool. And if hunters begin, hey, yeah, I'm going to move to this lead-free stuff, hey, that's cool. And I, I think the free market can, can do a lot – of good in that, in that, in that regard. Hey, one other thing that went into effect on July 1st, Matthew, right. is this ammunition background check law. So now to buy ammunition of any kind. Okay. So related to what we were just talking about, but now for you to buy ammunition in the state of California, you have to undergo a background check prior to receiving any ammunition. Yeah, this is crazy. I mean, and, and, and if you, if you go to the, the webpage, it kind of describes this because there is a process and it, and it depends on what type of, if you've had a background check ran recently and not. And so there's this flow chart, right? And I'm just thinking if you need a flow chart to, to understand if you're allowed to buy ammunition, then something's wrong. Like it's ammunition. I shouldn't have to like have like a degree in engineering to understand this freaking flow chart so I can go buy a box of 50 rounds to go to the range. It's crazy. But um, yeah, that's, that's what's happened. There's, there's even a video that you can watch um, to understand. So you're not in violation of this law. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, this is the most restrictive uh, law that I'm aware of in the United States as it relates to ammunition and ammunition purchases. Uh, the fact that, yeah, that you have to have a background check just to buy ammo. It's just, <laughs> it's just another way of controlling us. It's just another form of gun control. Absolutely. So, and also cost. You know, there's always, a, with all these things, there's there's a cost associated. So, all right. Washington State had... Uh, the initiative 1639 go into effect on July 1st. 
And this, of course, was was very strongly fought against and very narrowly passed. We're talking by like like less than a it's like about a percent, you know, percentage point difference. Uh, very, very, very close. Uh, and you know, the uh, the voters that voted for and against it. Uh, prospective purchasers purchasers of semi-automatic rifles will have to be they'll have to complete a specific firearm training course within the previous five years, transfers of semi-automatic rifles will be required to be delayed for 10 business days before the recipient can make, can take possession. So a 10 business day waiting period on a transfer, a purchase, uh, somebody gifting you one where, a, a tra- you know, where it's not within the, I think there's an ex- exemption for like family transfers, uh, like a, a father to a son, for instance. But uh, yeah, if you have to have a transfer, an official transfer done by a licensed dealer, 10 days, 10 day waiting period. Uh, and the existing handgun registry will extend to semi-automatic rifle transfers and recipients will be required to pay a fee of $18 to the Department of Licensing to process transfers. Again, what did I cool. say? Anytime we do anything like this, gun control related, background check related, there's a cost associated. And the new favorite thing for all of these anti-gunners is to put that cost on gun owners. So we're going to legislate you to do certain things with your guns or to register them or background check or whatever, and you're going to have to pay for it. it unbelievable. Uh, firearm owners will be required to also store firearms locked up per state standards. And uh, so yeah, so there you go. And then additionally, another bill that's going that went into effect on July 1st is that state concealed permit, concealed pistol license holders will have to undergo a a state background check on handgun purchases instead of using the instant NICS check that is currently being conducted as courtesy by the FBI. So they're moving there. So the FBI will no longer, so the state of Washington will no longer be using FBI to do NICS checks for CPL holders, but there'll be a state background check, which apparently is going to be better as it relates to preventing crime. Sure. Well, never mind the fact you already have a permit and you've already been background checked pretty thoroughly to probably get that permit, but whatever. Yeah. Money. So, yeah, money and gun control. Yep. Matthew, tell us, though, so, uh, Walmart is stopping gun sales in New Mexico over background check laws there. What's what's the deal with New Mexico? Yeah, so Walmart, um, and this isn't all Walmarts, because I know my Walmart here in Ohio, I can still, I can still buy ammunition, but um, they stopped selling firearms uh, or long guns and firearms in most of their stores. And then um, they were still in a weird, I don't know why, but they were allowing users to come in and have their, or not users, um, firearm owners to bring their firearms in and have them registered. Um, so basically it was like an FFL. Um, you could have firearms transferred in and things. So you would have, you'd be in the middle of Walmart and then they were concerned because people be like, Hey, check out this pistol I just bought. And there's a guy. So they said that it was scaring customers. So basically what they did is they just kind of nixed everything that had to do with firearms in the, uh, in in New Mexico Walmarts, um, which, I mean, I I kind of look, I don't agree with it, but I kind of understand if you're either going to, you're either going to sell guns and ammunition or you're not, you can't have like you know, people coming in and seeing people with, with firearms and not understanding that, yes, we do sell firearms there or we don't, or we do allow people to bring them in or trans. It's just, it's confusing. So I think the policy kind of set up this issue where people were like freaked out 
in Walmart thinking, yeah, why does this guy have a gun? They don't sell guns. Well, we don't sell them, but we transfer them in. And it, it just became a hassle, I believe. Yeah. This is just another interesting repercussion of universal background checks, right? Now, we've yeah. dealt with universal background checks here in Colorado for the last uh, six six years. And uh, first of all, I'll just say a couple of things about this. Number one, it, I don't think has really done anything substantial at all in reducing or preventing crime. Okay. And all it's really done is created a hassle, uh, a big time hassle for law abiding gun owners where it comes to how they uh, transfer their firearms. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I used to be able to buy guns used and get good, good deals. You know, you find the right person at the right time. that's looking to, you know, the, not that you're taking advantage of people, but you know, everybody knows that friend that's like, Hey man, I had medical bills come up. I got, I got to sell, you know, my, my favorite, you know, I got to sell this hunting shotgun, you know, or something like, okay, cool, man. Like, what are you looking to get for it? Well, normally like 400, but you know, in this case, I, if I can just get 300 for it, I'm good. Like, boom. All right. Here's, you know, like that kind of deal used to go down all the time. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that's partly how I acquired a lot of the guns that, that I, ha that I, that I have in my collection, uh, is because I, of people I knew, people that uh, were looking to, uh, you know, they were looking to put money in their pocket and I was looking for a deal. It's a lot harder now uh, where everything has to go through the dealers. Now, that's a minor, minor complaint. I, I, I understand. It's still a valid one, okay? Because I think it is a huge inconvenience, an unnecessary one. But um, so I don't know what's different between how Colorado's law is written versus New Mexico's, but apparently there's this, uh, mm, you know, the Walmarts in New Mexico are, are obligated or feel obligated to handle these private party transfers. And that is a mess. In Colorado, there's no obligation at all for dealers to participate in private party transfers. There's many of them that won't even do it. And that's a frustration too, yeah. just so you know, uh, because there's been plenty of times where, you know, I've needed to do a transfer with somebody like some, like Jacob and I have transferred stuff between us. One time we were trying to find a dealer that would do that. Uh, that was, you know, closer to him and, and me, you know, so we could kind of meet halfway. I mean, we don't live exactly super close. Um, I have a dealer, you know, further south here that I use all the time for my personal stuff. But uh, we called like two dealers before we found, you know, somebody that could do it. Uh, so, and one of the, one of the dealers that I contacted was, is somebody I've bought guns from, from before. And I think, you know, very positively of as a dealer, like they have good selection. Uh, you know, they're, they're decent people. They have a nice little shop and I called them up fully expecting that they would do transfers and they, they didn't because they don't want to deal with the hassle. And that's basically what we have here in New Mexico is, is Walmart said, we don't want to deal with the hassle because again, for whatever reason, there's, and it's a little unclear to me as to why Walmart's even getting pulled into this because we definitely don't see Walmart's here in Colorado with people showing up expecting to be able to do private party transfers. But uh, anyway, universal background checks, I think are, are ineffective largely and just cause a lot of kinds of problems for people. Walmart's having to get out of the business of selling guns in New Mexico because of universal background checks. Okay. Mm -hmm. I know some people aren't exactly hurt, hurt at all by that, but, um, but I don't think that's, I think that's unfortunate though. Mm -hmm. I much prefer Walmarts that sell guns and ammo and all that stuff. You know, sometimes you, you need something, you stop, you know, you're, you're, 
uh, I, I've had to do that where I've stopped in at Walmarts and uh, strange, strange locations, you know, places uh, more rural or whatever. And I'm always excited when I'm like, oh, they got guns and they have a good selection of ammo. When they have, when they actually sell guns, those Walmarts always have the better selection of ammo. <laughs> yep. Anyway, let's turn our attention now to New Zealand. Uh, the uh, Christchurch uh, mosque shootings uh, or shooting, but it was, you know, we had, uh, I guess, two different mosques. One where the shooter went inside the mosque. The other was out, you know, the shooting took place out, outside of the mosque. Uh, but we had the, the the mosque shooting and New Zealand just has completely freaked out, right? Their, their government has. Um, has Jacinda or Hacinda um, Ardern or whatever her name is, she's the prime minister of New Zealand. Uh, immediately after that shooting, she says, we are going to change our laws and we're going to change them in a big way. And boy, they have moved very quickly to basically outlaw semi-automatic rifles, especially of the tactical sort. Uh, they are they are marching right down the list of all the popular anti-gunner moves. You know, like we want to, we want to do this, we want to go after this. So New Zealand was was formerly a bastion of, of gun freedom, uh, in the, uh, you know, South Pacific, uh, compared to say like Australia and a number of other islands, islands and island nations. Uh, so all of a sudden they are, you know, quickly, you know, they're, they're becoming the next Australia, uh, not entirely, but, but, uh, it's moving in that direction. So the latest thing, you know, so that, so they've already had this confiscation of these, uh, uh, certain classes of guns, such as like AR-15 style guns. And they are, they have been running a gun buyback program. I think you can turn in any gun whatsoever. And that's been running for, for a couple of weeks now, I believe. So, I mean, any gun you want to turn in, you could turn it in and they're supposedly compensating people for it. I believe up to this point, they've compensated about three and a half million dollars worth of guns. So New Zealand, the government is really kind of, it's putting its money where its mouth is as far as it's stepping up and paying out to buy these guns back. I don't know how fair the value is that people are getting. Uh, they're, they're supposed to compensate a fair value because I know that as people are taking guns, it's the police stations and police departments that I believe is where these gun buybacks are taking place. And so they're taking these in and then they are evaluating the guns as for values and you know the condition of the firearm and so forth, and uh, and then I guess some paperwork is filled out, and then you get a check sometime later. I've been following this interesting blog, Matthew. It's called the Kiwi Gun Blog, hmm. and it is fantastic. This this guy down there is doing a, a really top notch play by play reporting of everything going on with all this gun gun control drama in New Zealand. Um. I know that uh, he turned in some of his guns, uh, regretfully so. And he, he did a whole post about how sad it made him. But, and he didn't want to, but I think probably because he has somewhat of a public, uh, uh, he's in the public eye a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. he, he has this blog. It's a well-known blog. Uh, like people know he has guns. So like he had to, he had to, he had to comply uh, mm-hmm. or, or police are probably going to show up at his door. And uh I know he's still, you know, after 10 days, he's still waiting to see his money. All right. But, uh, so hopefully that actually comes through. Um, anyway, 
if you want to follow the Kiwi Gun Blog, I would highly recommend it. Uh, excellent, excellent stuff if you're interested at all what's going on in New Zealand. So again, back to what's going on now. So they've they've outlawed certain classes of guns, particularly like the gun that was used in that shooting, an AR-15 style. Um, they are uh, doing comp- they're doing they're doing confisc- confiscations and gun buybacks. Now they're talking about requiring a a full-on gun registry which they guess they, they haven't had up to this point because they've had licenses for gun owners. And I believe they were a lifetime license. You applied for, you got this license that allowed you to buy pretty much like whatever guns. Uh, and then now they're saying, not only are they going to continue the license programs and require you to renew those every five years, but you're also going to have to have a registry of all your guns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it- he, here's here's my thing, and, and you guys might be tracking with me like, okay, this is in New Zealand. What does it matter to me, right? But if you read this article, it is a chilling description of what will happen if registration occurs in the United States, without a doubt. Because once registration happens, they spell it out clear as day here. And this is exactly what, you know, when you hear Swalwell and all these other people pushing for registrations and it's just common sense and this and that. This is exactly, this is exactly what the the playbook or the blueprint. So if you if just a couple, I'll just highlight a couple statements out of here that will kind of cement this for you. Okay, yep. so it says the value of firearms register uh, in the case of the Christchurch uh, shootings would have been in red flag raised by a licensed individual buying multiple firearms in a short period of time. Okay, so that is going to be one of the red flags. So if you want to buy, I don't know what they say, whatever quantity multiple is, maybe two, maybe three. If you buy three firearms, then maybe you're flagged as a Christchurch shooter possible, right? Yep. This is in the case with the accused shooter. A registry will also provide valuable intelligence on the number of firearms registered to an address. And this should help police officers turning up to violate family harm incidents, which account for a huge percentage of an officer. So like your d- domestic violence calls, right? So when they come there, they know, okay, so-and-so has so many uh, guns. This is exactly what we've been talking about, right? Um, steps such as introducing five-year licenses and reviewing the rules around licensing of individual firearm owners, gun dealers, and gun clubs will go a long way to ensuring, I don't know how they're going to do this, but ensuring firearms are on- only in the hands of, this is the chilling part, those who are fit to hold or sell them. So who's going to decide who's fit to hold or sell them? The government. So you're going to have Eric Swalwell, you're going to have whoever, fill in the blank, and that's going to who's, who's going to be judging whether you are fit to hold a gun or sell a gun. That's the scary part about registry. That's what we're always against. That is, this is the blueprint. This is, I mean, this is the blueprint. Yep. Now there's a question from David. He's ask, actually asking about how many uh, guns have been turned in compared to how many are in the country. Uh, so what? It's an, there's an estimated. This is according to the to the state government in New Zealand. Uh, it is estimated that there's 1.5 million guns in country. All right, it's a pretty good number actually for as big as New Zealand is. Uh, 1.5 million. And I don't have the exact number on how many guns have been turned in, but I know it numbers in the thousands. Okay. 
it's it's a very small fraction and a very small percentage of the total estimated uh, number of guns that are in New Zealand. Uh, that should really come as no sh- sh- surprise or shock to anybody. I mean, when when Australia did their big gun ban back in the '90s, uh, it's estimated only like they were only able to to uh, confiscate or, or or get one third of the total number of guns that were in Australia. Right? People just simply didn't comply. And here's the thing: of course, the government's pushing for registry because what is registry? Assuming you can get every gun registered to an owner which that's not, that's not going to happen. But assuming you can, what's the point? What's the purpose? It's so that they know who has what. And so what does that facilitate? Better, more complete, more thorough confiscation. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where it's going. That's where it will go. That's why they're pushing for it. Why do you think that they're pushing for similar things right here in the United States of America? That's why we're talking about New Zealand today, by the way. This is a model, a current recent modern day model of how a country goes from relative gun freedom to the opposite of that in quick order and the repercussions and the pitfalls of that. You have people in this country right now, they don't even have a second amendment in New Zealand. They don't even have that. We do, but yet we still have people wanting to push for a very similar legislation. Where do you think it will go? This is the model. This is where it will go. And by the way, for those of you who think, oh, I, I'll just claim, you know, I lost all those in a boat accident. Uh, I actually saw a related story to this New Zealand one from New Zealand of a guy that when police showed up, apparently, he tried to claim, oh, they got stolen last week. Uh, didn't go so well for him. They figured it out. They found his guns, and uh, he's he's seeing some jail time now because he lied. All right, yeah, it won't go well. I guarantee you, it, it won't go the way that you think it'll go if you try to claim anything like that. Yeah. Let's shift gears. Let's talk about the NRA. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this probably won't you know take us very long at all. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this is an article from the Rolling Stone. Now, I almost hate to use a source from the Rolling, Rolling Stone uh, because the Rolling Stone is well known for just absolutely butchering <laughs> uh, gun-related news and stories and things and issues uh, in the past. But I came across this article. I actually think this is a pretty decent article from the Rolling Stone. Like, I think it's actually pretty accurate accounting of what's going on at the NRA. All right. Now, to be clear, let me give you a little bit of background. We we recently, you know what, probably 40 episodes ago, I don't remember exactly, but you know, not, not too long ago, we had we had Adam Kraut, we had Dwayne Liptak. So Adam was running for board of directors, did not win. At, uh, Dwayne Liptak is a board of director uh, at uh, the NRA. And, and then we also had uh, Maj Ture on talking about similar things about the NRA because he was basically talking about, and actually started with Maj saying, I'm done with the NRA, okay? Because they promised, you know, all these these wonderful things to me and my organization, and it all fell through. Uh, Dwayne, we had on to talk about his viewpoint on the the status and the and, and the the current state of the NRA as a board of director, and then we had Adam, who's trying to get on the board uh, for his perspective, and all that was 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 fine. Now, when I was talking with Dwayne, Dwayne really impressed me uh, because of 
uh, what, I mean, Dwayne, I think is a good dude. And I think he is trying to do all the right things. Uh, and I think his, his perspective is I'm going to try to do good work inside the NRA and we're going to try to influence and change the NRA from the inside. And honestly, it has to, it kind of has to happen that way. Like the way the NRA is structured, those that are in power, specifically executive team, especially Wayne LaPierre, are protected by the organization that is the NRA. It's so hard. It's not like a corporation that has a board of, I don't know, say 10 or 16 members that, you know, a CEO who is kept in, in place, but you know, the board of board of directors of a, of a corporation that makes a lot of those decisions as far as we don't have faith in, a, in our CEO anymore. Well, they're going to have a vote and that CEO is going to get booted. It doesn't take a whole lot, but when you have a board with 76 members, it, it, it's dang near impossible to really get any sort of momentum to affect positive change in an organization like the NRA. And so you, you, and that, that was intentional, by the way, they increased the number of board of directors uh, a couple of decades ago. And I think that's been to the detriment of the organization, frankly. So you have a guy like Wayne LaPierre, um, love him or hate him. I know, I guarantee you, some of you listening to the podcast right now are big supporters, big fans of the NRA. By the way, I'm a big fan of the NRA too, but I'm not a fan of the current leadership team at the NRA. I'm not a fan with some of the direction that the NRA has gone with recent uh, policies and, and changes and directives. Here's what's going on. You have all this stuff that has fallen apart, okay, between the NRA and their PR firm, which is Ackerman McQueen. And you have the NRA blaming Ackerman McQueen for the NRA's problems. But what people fail to see, at least some people, and the picture that, the, that, that Wayne LaPierre and his cronies were trying to paint is that it's all Ackerman McQueen and gun control, you know, anti-gunners. It, that, it's, it's all them trying to bring us down. But the reality is it's Wayne LaPierre personally and others in the executive team that have allowed Ackerman McQueen to take advantage of the NRA that have allowed those expenditures and those, those budgets to creep up, that have allowed all, I mean, everything that the NRA is saying now that the, that the Ackerman McQueen did that is, you know, that was wrong uh, from like a financial and an auditing perspective, I believe was all allowed because of a failure in management and leadership, which points at the very top of the NRA. Mm-hmm. So anyway, change is needed. And as people are trying to influence change, they are being brought down or dismissed. Uh, So Oliver North had concerns. He was the president, had concerns about accounting, okay, about expenditures, all right, including those by Ackerman McQueen. And he brought those to, he he said, hey, there's a problem here. And he, you know, he had to resign. They kicked him out. Okay. Chris Cox. I don't know what happened there, but he's been let go. He's been with the organization a long time. He's also another kind of controversial figure there, but obviously something happened between, and and the word is on the street is that Chris was trying to do some things behind the scenes 
to maybe ouster LaPierre. Now, probably for Chris Cox's uh, benefit, right? Because he probably stands, he stood next next in line probably to ascend to the throne, so to speak, of executive vice president of the NRA. So LaPierre sees him as a threat, boom, kicks him out, all right? You have, and this is where I've started to become very disillusioned with the NRA, Matthew. Uh, people that I know personally, some of them now, uh, board of directors who have had committee assignments stripped from them by who, who picks those assignments? None other than uh, uh, Meadows, Carolyn Meadows, the new president of the NRA. And she's a crony of Wayne LaPierre. He put, he, he wanted her to be president because he knew that she would march, you know, march in lockstep with him on things. She is stripping from board members, committee assignments, board members that have disagreed or chosen to vocalize their disagreement uh, with the current leadership of the NRA. So basically what we have is those that are in power are doing everything they can to claw their way at and keep and hold on to that power. And they're trying to push out everybody else that is a threat to that power. That is a sign that in of itself is a sign that there's, that there's problems. Yeah. Right. When you're, when you're that concerned about threats inside the organization or even outside, there's something there that you're concerned about that you're either trying to cover up or you're really just trying to preserve the fact that you are in power. You are the most powerful person in the organization. You're going to do everything you can to hang on to that. That, that tells me there's problems just, just because there's too much power in that position. Right? Wayne LaPierre has too much power for an organization such as the NRA that is made up of five plus million Americans that pay money to the NRA and people that vote for leadership positions at the NRA. But that vote is having very little effect because this man has and is able to wield way too much power. Now I've, I've, I've vented way too long here, <laughs> but I'm just trying to paint the picture. Like this is some of the drama, some of the issues that's going on there at the NRA. And yes, it looks very ugly on the outside. It looks, you know, the, the anti-gunners moms demand action and Bloomberg, all these people, they're just, Oh, they are just excited. They, they want to see the NRA just completely implode and fall apart. I don't think that's going to happen because I think the NRA will survive this, but I definitely think that it can't survive in its current state and form. And there's got to be some change that occurs. And the timing is not super great, realizing we have a, a pretty major election year next year. But uh, so I think this needs to get fixed and addressed as quickly as possible. And we get back to business. Yeah, I, I don't know what more I could add. I'll just, my perspective is that this is the problem with every organization that becomes huge where exe- where people are making six-figure salaries and have all these added bonuses just to be in hold a position right just it's no different than government where the the, the reason why you're there is second to you maintaining your control your power your 
status, your position, that is number one. So whatever you have to do. So you go out and you have these, you know, like, uh, you know, po- politicians will have these fake, I'm outraged at this congressman or this senator, or this or that out in public. And then behind bar, behind, you know, the doors are joking and eating dinner together and stuff. They, they go through the motions to just appear as though they're doing something to fight for you. But really, they're just going through the motions so they can maintain the status quo. And I think that's what's happened with LaPierre. He's gotten so accustomed to maintaining the status quo. He wants to wear the clothes he wants, travel where he wants, make six-figure salaries, do whatever he wants. And he's lost touch with the the purpose of the NRA. And and I think it's just, it's inevitable, you know, power corrupts people, money corrupts people. And that's what's happened. Absolutely. And and talk about that corruption. I mean, there's definitely some fishy things. I mean, this is some of the stuff people have been drawing attention to with, with Wayne LaPierre are some of the expenditures, you know, on, on, uh, I mean, apparently there's this like intern or, or aid that, you know, he, that was provided a furnished apartment, you know, and, and, uh, you know, crazy expenses on, on suits and clothing and stuff like that. Now, you know, when you represent a large organization or a company, I'm not going to say it's actually, I, I, I don't think it's inappropriate for a business uh, and the NRA is a business to it, you know, a, of a, it's not a traditional business, but it is a business and it's run like a business. Uh, it's not entirely inappropriate for a business to say, Hey, we have budgeted some funds to buy suits or clothing or whatever for some of our executive people who represent us. So we want them to look good. I actually don't have a problem with that to an extent, Right when we start seeing some bills in the 200,000s or more range for stuff like that, now it's starting to seem a little extreme, right? Mm-hmm. Just a little extreme. So like there, there's, there's that fiduciary responsibility that an organization holds, whether it's to its stockholders or to its members, right? And when an organization is spending money in reckless, in unaccounted for ways, and that's what's basically happening there, especially with Ackerman McQueen, then we have a problem. And that's all people are trying to say here. And any of the board members that bring up any concern whatsoever, they are being shut down. All right. So I was inspired after we had uh, Dwayne Liptak on. I thought, you know what, if there's, if there's people like him and I, and there's others, Timothy, Timothy, Timothy Knight, uh, geez, let me think who else we have on the board. That's, um, mm, drawing a, drawing a blank right now. There are several, even Alan West, Colonel Alan West, who's a board member, uh, has been saying some things, being a little bit more outspoken and had his committee uh, assignments stripped from him. Okay. There, there's good people there that are trying to do some good things and trying to make the NRA better, but they're being shut down. And I thought, you know, at the time we had Dwayne on, I like, you know, I like hearing what, what you're saying. And I, I will continue to support the organization. And at that time, my, my mindset was the organization is, is bigger than these people. I'm not so sure that's the case anymore. All right. My, my, my opinion and my viewpoint has been changed on this somewhat since we had Dwayne on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm not sending them any more money. I'm not giving the NRA any more support until they get their act cleaned up. And part of the cleaning up the act, unfortunately, I mean, I, and I think it is unfortunate because I do think that 
The intentions were more pure at one time, but Wayne LaPierre has to go. We had to clean house. Hmm. ATF, tell us about the ATF uh, uh, ruling or rule change, Matthew. Yeah, basically, so if, if you have a um, AR pistol, you probably are concerned about, you know, I have a brace on it. I don't. Can I shoulder it? Can I not? There's all kinds of like these little loopholes and things that you have to jump through, right? And, and one inch can turn your gun from, you know, legal compliant to now you're, you know, potential felon or whatever. Um, so basically this, this change or this uh, directive from the ATF was focused on the way that you measure the firearm, okay? And so the, the length determines if it is um, a, um, a, what is it called? Uh, what's AOW stand for? Uh, other, uh, any, uh, any other weapon, sorry. I'm, right, I'm sitting so here typing a uh, comment yeah. to Facebook <laughs> viewers. and <laughs> I'm trying to remember. So any other weapon. So basically, if it's any other weapon, it falls under um, the National Firearms Act. So you'd have to have a certain license to be able to possess it, all this stuff. So it all boils down to how is the gun measured? And so before it was measured from the end of the like barrel shroud, right, to the end of the... Uh, whether it's a brace or a stock or whatever. Um, or no, I'm sorry, it was to, yeah, that's correct, right? So then now they're going to measure it from the, 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 the uh, barrel shroud to where the um, receiver, I don't know the part that is called, but the receiver where the stock or the, the uh, brace would mount you could do is you could fold that out and extend the, the gun basically circumventing the law and you'd actually have a, a firearm that's smaller um and, and and so basically what it is is it changed the way it measured it so now if you have a ar pistol uh and you were good to go with a uh, arm brace and you had a ford stock on it or a ford grip vertical grip um now you are no longer able to do that based on the new measuring because now you would fall into uh, any other weapon because now that would not fall into a pistol because you have a Ford grip and it would require two hands to fire it. it uh, sorry to make it very confusing, but it is very confusing. Um, so this, this right. is basically the ATF just changing the rules mid-game, basically. Yeah, so I mean, just to simplify and kind of restate what you said in case there's any confusion from anybody. Uh, basically, if you had a what might be thought of as a rifle right as far as like like an ar-15 okay but in pistol form meaning it has a shorter barrel uh but doesn't have a stock and that's that's the key that you know that that determines or basically defines a, an ar-15 pistol as opposed to being a rifle is really that it doesn't have an actual rifle stock right and again as you mentioned matthew that a pistol by by definition by uh uh by the uh by by the national firearms act definition a pistol is defined as something that as a firearm that can be fired with one hand that is designed for firing with one hand right that's that's really what it comes down to so that's why something that has a stock well that would suggest that you're actually shouldering it and if you shoulder a, a, a rifle, 
you usually are using a second hand to support it. It's a little awkward to just pull a rifle into your shoulder and try shooting it one-handed, right? That's that's the point here. So, all right. So we have the this invention of a new category, essentially. You know, these geniuses such as like a SB Tactical uh, and Six Hours involved in this early on as well that said, hey, let's make an arm brace, right? And that'll, and, and truthfully, by the way, I know some disabled people and we've had Rick Cicero yep. on the podcast talk about it. Like it's actually a thing that having the arm brace makes it easier for someone who's disabled to shoot one of these ARs or other similar guns with one hand better, yep. right? So it's actually a thing, but people got this idea, hey, we can create this pistol and have it be short-barreled, kind of like an SBR, short-barreled rifle, but not have it be taxed and licensed by the ATF because it's using this pistol brace. It's still intended to be fired with one hand, right? Which that's true. So it's intended to be fired with one hand. Now, is that the best way to shoot? No. Okay, even though a pistol, the one I'm carrying right now, is intended to be fired with one hand, is that the way I tend to shoot it? No, I still use my pistol two-handed. You know, when I hear stuff like this new ruling, Matthew, it makes me wonder, will we ever see the day where the ATF or somebody tries to regulate and say, wait a minute, you can't use two hands on that handgun because as soon as you do, you know, you're changing its classification and it needs to be, you know, like, like yeah. it's it, to me, the, the idea of legislating use of a product is the dumbest thing in the world. Exactly. It's the dumbest thing in the world to say that we think we, we, we are so high and mighty that we could tell somebody how to use something. <laughs> and how often do we see that printed on products? You know, failure to use this product as intended or in accordance with the instructions is, you know, illegal or whatever. Like I've seen that before. Right. Everyone's seen that kind of crap before. It's so dumb, right? Um, so that's basically what we're talking about here, right? So a, a, a pistol right? That is a, that is really a short barreled rifle, but converted for pistol use with a brace. The, the old ruling basically said, if the Mac, if the length of that pistol is 26 inches or more, then you can put a four grip on it. And it, it, it would, you wouldn't have to, you know, you wouldn't be violating the NFA, for instance, the ATF is basically saying, nope, well, they're changing the way things are measured. Mm-hmm. That, that's the key here. So um, what it comes down to, and I said this I, you know, earlier, um, maybe, it was in the, maybe it was even before we went live, I don't remember, but uh, you know, I basically said, look, if you have a pistol brace on a short-barreled whatever, don't put a vertical foregrip on it if you want to be safe. All right? So that's, that's, pretty, much, that's pretty much what this means. Don't use vertical foregrips on AR pistols or other pistol stabilizing braced equipped guns. Yep. Okay. Uh, that's the safe way. All right. And then earlier this year, in the ATF has flip flopped like four times on whether you can shoulder a, a, an AR pistol or a braced which, gun. Which is crazy. I mean, people are like, oh, I, I can't shoulder this in this video because I don't want somebody to see it and then I get arrested for putting a gun in my shoulder that's legal, but now I, it touches my shoulder and it's illegal. It's, it's crazy. And again, 
it, apparently it's illegal to shoulder it, but I can hold the brace against my cheek and that's okay. Like, again, if we go back to the definition of pistol, according to the NFA, a pistol is a, is a firearm de- designed to be fired one-handed with one hand. Well, if the ATF really wants to make it really simple and straightforward, oh, crap, I shouldn't give them this idea. <laughs> then you could just simply say, but again, this, this, this goes to what I was talking about. They could just say, you can't shoot a braced AR or whatever with more than one hand. All right, but that starts. See, see, that's why. That's where I was going earlier when I said, "Can you imagine if they ever try to say you can't shoot a pistol with one hand, or with more than one hand?" Right? Man, I don't know. Crazy times we live in. Going now to New Jersey. New Jersey's new smart gun law is a disaster in the making. So get this, guys. Back in two thousand two, they wait, wait. Hold on. Well, it was in two thousand two. They um, yeah, they, they passed a law that required, uh, basically this is what the law said. If smart gun technology become, became a thing or becomes a thing, right, to where uh, smart guns are invented and designed and manufactured and sold on the market, then it would mandate that dealers in the state of New Jersey, would have to sell smart guns. It had to make them available to New Jerseyans, mm-hmm. right? And so, and by the way, there there are people involved in legislation like this that would love to pass law that says uh, by such and such date, people must own or use or carry smart guns. Yeah, what Meaning, that is doesn't no one knows, but right. But but I think the idea is. It's a gun that, because of technology that's incorporated into it, you are the you are the only person that can actually use or fire that gun, and that gun will be registered to you because, of course, we have to have a registry, right? <laughs> so the idea is we have guns that are registered to an individual, and then we incorporate smart gun technology that forces you know so that basically it make, requires that you are the only person being the registered owner that can use that gun. That's where they want to go. Our second episode ever of the podcast, we talked about smart gun technology. It was not my favorite episode ever, by the way, but uh, uh, at the time it seemed relevant. It seemed like it was important to talk about. (laughs) Um, So basically what we're talking about now is that, uh, so this article on hotair.com says, the new Democratic governor, Phil Murphy, arrived in office. He began working with the Democratic majority in the legislature to pass onerous gun control laws. Not satisfied with that effort, he has now rolled out a new package of legislation along the same lines referred to as Gun Safety Package 2.0. One of the chief elements of this new legislation deals with so-called smart guns and mandates their availability in the garden state. Okay? And so... That's that's where this is based. I, I don't know. I, we'd really need to um, talk about it much further than that. That's where they're trying to go, though. That's the goal, and that's why they wanted to go there. That's the ultimate of gun control. Have guns be required to be registered to a specific individual, and then by technology, you restrict it in such a way that that's the only person that can touch and use that gun. That's the ultimate in gun control, other than taking them completely away. Yeah, th- this whole argument makes my head hurt. I just, I can't, I can't even understand. I can't talk to, 
if if people are on this trajectory of like having microchips and guns, they just they don't understand how a gun works, how human, how how, how people live. They they, they they don't understand. They it's it's just pointless. I can't I can't understand. It makes my head hurt. Yeah, you want to make the gun smart, but the person's stupid. <laughs> well. You know, according to the government, we we are stupid. Yeah, like we're just subjects. Exactly. Um, yeah. Rather have a smart person than a dumb gun. Yeah. That's so, oh, I didn't finish uh, the uh, circling or back around to so this new legislation. By the way, so I mentioned that that they that they want to repeal the 2002 law that uh, would not make the sale of guns. So they would not mandate this that smart guns be sold in New Jersey until smart guns were available nationwide. But now what this new law by Governor Murphy, what he wants to push for is a a law that takes effect immediately and mandates that gun dealers stock and make available at least one model of smart gun in their stores now. Yep. All right. So there you go. There's, There's the conclusion to all that. (laughs) <laughs> okay, um, last story. Former NYPD officer sues gunmaker over faulty handguns. Give us a rundown, Matthew. Yeah, so you guys have probably followed along with some of the uh, Instagram and YouTube videos about um, honor defense. The gun, it's not being drop safe. So if it drops a certain angle, um, it will fire. And the same thing happened with the P320 um, SIG. You know, they they did a voluntary upgrade um, and Honor Defense did a similar thing where, but first, I, and I think, I, I don't know if this is kind of what kind of cooked their goose or, or got them in this position because they're the ones being sued by this officer, obviously because it's he, he owned an Honor Defense gun. But um, I don't know if it's the way Honor Defense went about it, about it the, initially. Um, the owner, um, he came on and did a podcast with us and, and kind of explained all, everything that's going on as far as the standards of testing um, and, and how it's tested and, and that you know they're passing all, all, this, all the tests. But initially, he kind of gave some pushback to the Instagram people that were like, you know, this is a piece of junk. You guys are, you know, putting people in, in harm's way. And he basically came out and said, look, I mean, you shouldn't be dropping your gun and, and, and kind of gave a little bit of pushback. And I think that might have gotten him a little bit of animosity more than Sig, who just kind of like quietly was like, hey, we're rolling out this trigger upgrade in case because... You know, so, um, but you know, Riley and Jacob, they did a good testing on the gun and showed that, yeah, it it, it can fire. It did fire after the um, the upgrades. Uh, it, it it didn't fire. You know, uh, that it was it was then drop safe. Um, and you know, there's an argument between is it an unsafe gun if it isn't totally drop safe if it's that one percent out of a hundred. Um, or is that something that, you know, you shouldn't be dropping your gun? I don't know if that's the argument here. The argument here for me is that I don't think it's honor defense's fault. I think it's the testing, the way the guns are tested. Because if honor defense goes through all the nationally recognized tests and says, hey, our gun passed, where does that liability then fall, you know, um, 
sure. if, you know, if, if they're following the, the protocol, right? So maybe the protocol needs to be changed. And I don't know, there might be some argument as to when did Honor Defense find out about this? How did they go about, you know, notifying the buyers? Um, that might be the issue is like, not so much, hey, the gun is unsafe, but when did you know and how did you go about it? Was it reasonable yeah. that those people with these guns would have known about it, would have known about the upgrades. And if they didn't, that might be, you know, kind of where, where tilts in, in, in against on our defense. I don't know though. Yeah. I think that is uh, kind of what, what the point here is, is that uh, so the, the, really the only testing currently available that, that really tests guns and gun safety are the SAMI tests, right? Uh, which SAMI is the Sporting Arms Ammunition Manufacturers Institute and governs, doesn't really govern anything, right? It's, it's really kind of more uh, voluntary and it is industry funded. But uh, so like SAMI, you know, kind of sets uh, uh, pressure levels for ammunition. Okay. So, so you always hear about SAMI spec ammunition. Uh, for instance, nine millimeter NATO is outside of SAMI spec. It's a lot higher pressure than, than, you know, than stuff you buy at the store normally, you know, that's like Winchester white box, for instance, you know, Winchester white box is going to be Sammy spec, right? But you buy nine millimeter NATO stuff spec for per military specifications. It's faster and hotter and, and, and it's like a plus P right. And plus P by the way, plus P goes outside of spec. Anyway, Sammy also does this testing on handguns and other firearms, but it doesn't test them as thoroughly as they probably could. And that is probably the point. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So that's a whole other debate, right? And I do think that's probably worth looking at and, and discussing and looking at, okay, from, as from an industry standpoint, Sammy could do better testing on handguns. Here's, here's where I want to go with this. When was it ever considered a good idea to drop a gun? Yeah, never. And I'm trying to think. Right? Of, I'm trying to think like, of the time I ever dropped a gun. Sure, sure. I don't know that I've ever non-intentionally dropped a gun. Yeah, I've I've I, intentionally done it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it's never. Ha- I'm just trying to. I'm I'm trying to wrap my heads around. You know, and I'm trying to think of it. I, I you know, I can't. I can't off the top of my head think of when I dropped a gun. That doesn't mean to say that, you know, it can't happen and should it be safe? Yeah, but, you know, everybody's probably going to have their own opinion on, you know, whose fault should you (laughs) – I I think we all want a gun that doesn't fire when it's dropped. I think – And I recognize that. I get that, right? Like, I want the same thing too. Like, I I don't – like, if I carry a gun, particularly – we, we talk all the time about EDC, right? Everyday mm-hmm. carry. Well, if you truly carry every day, you're, you're doing all these different things. You know, you're, you're living your life. You're living your lifestyle and you're carrying a gun while you're doing it. You want to know that the gun that you carry every day on your person uh, is not capable of discharging on its own mm-hmm. uh, or, or at least easily. Uh, so now to be clear, you know, P320 went through this, right, from Six Hour. Now, the Honor Guard from Honor Defense, same sort of thing, right? You know, similar issue. And particularly, they seemed like they were more vulnerable with that negative 30-degree angle dropped kind of on the back upper part of the slide. Uh, and that's kind of what we found, too. Uh, that That is actually what we established in our testing when we dropped the Honor Guard a bunch of times. 
Uh, and by the way, it took like 20 something times. It was a bunch, you know, now is it possible that you just happen to drop it one time at that perfect angle uh, and everything is just, you know, Murphy's law is just absolutely perfectly executed and that gun goes off. Yeah. That, and that, I suppose maybe that's what happened with this, this officer or retired officer that apparently it says he dropped his still holstered on our guard, nine millimeter pistol and it fired and it hit him in the leg. Um, so, you know, that, that, should that happen? No, I don't think that should happen. We want to know our guns are safe. At the same time, I do feel like there's kind of this whole, we, we're so quick, we want to blame the manufacturer. Okay, the manufacturer, meanwhile, is like, well, we're in accordance with all current standards, right? Um, so really, if you make a gun exceed those standards, you're doing it and you're, you're doing it intentionally. You're doing it voluntarily. And that's, you know, there's plenty of gun manufacturers that, that either do that intentionally or they just, by nature of their design, it happens to not be susceptible to some of the weaknesses as have been made uh, uh, known about the P320 and the, and the Honor Guard. Anyway, um, and I get that, Jared. Jared's commenting. It's, it isn't discharging on its own if you drop it. I, I, what I mean is, by not putting your finger on the trigger. That's what I'm talking about there, right? We want to know our gun's not going to fire when it's in a holster and nothing's touching the trigger, uh, obviously, because that's, that's the point of it being in a holster. Like a, a holstered gun should never go off. That would be the ideal, right? Uh, that's what we desire. And so is it good for these companies to revise their designs and make it better and make it safer? Absolutely. Now, here's, here's why the P320 and the Honor Guard did not get recalled. They didn't get recalled because there's nothing um, either standard-wise or law or legal-wise, meaning that there's there was nothing nothing about those designs that would require recall, right? Uh, so a company, say, like we had the whole Firestone tire issue with Ford way back in the day, you know, a number of years, probably almost twenty years ago now. Um, there, there was a fault in how the tires were manufactured, which led to them blowing out. That's a problem. That's a manufacturing defect. And it can actually be shown. And maybe there's additional, I don't know this for a fact, but maybe there's additional rules or laws or regulations that govern tires and vehicles and things that the, firearm manuf- that the firearms industry doesn't have. So there's nothing under on the books that would say that how the guns were manufactured by Sig Sauer and by Honor Defense that says that this was manufactured incorrectly or wrongly or out of spec. They were manufactured to a specification that was designed by the company and then tested by Sammy and they went, it passes the test. It's good to go. Yeah. Right. And it went for a while before anybody discovered any of that. That just tells you like how unlikely this is. And even a bunch of manufacturer testing might not necessarily show that, right? So uh, we, we learn and we move on and we move forward. Uh, so anyway, uh, the unfortunate thing here, you know, we're telling the story is that, uh, and we know Gary over at Honor Defense, obviously, he's been on the podcast and, and we like Gary and I like his company and I like what he's trying to do. I mean, he's trying to build a business from nothing, from scratch, building a gun from scratch of a, of a unique uh, design and do it with American-made materials and with 
American workers that also happen to be veterans. That's pretty freaking cool. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he has a lawsuit to contend with now. All right. And so at, and it, and at, at a good price too. So oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Defensive handgun. I, you know, I, I can't help but uh, throw this out there: is this not the legal argument, but kind of the responsibility argument that like some of the uh, comments in the in Facebook about the responsibility, whose responsibility? This kind of reminds me of I don't know if you guys follow Mike Rowe, but he 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 did this um, thing about um, when safety sh- safety isn't first. And it's, it's kind of like this idea that, you know, safety isn't my responsibility because everything's already made safe around me. You know, I only cross when, the, when, the, when it shows that I can cross. So then people walk blindly across because it has a white guy, you know, lights up white. You walk across in the, in the parking lot you, or in, in, across the street and you get hit because they think, oh, I'm safe. I, it's, it's allowing me to walk. So we've kind of like taken our personal responsibility and placed it on these gadgets or organizations to make us safe. And, and it's kind of like the same argument. I don't, I'm, I don't know, you know, if, if you've heard this, I'm sure you have like, well, Glock's disassembly isn't safe because you have to pull the trigger to disassemble it. Well, yeah. is that unsafe? I don't think so because the gun should be unloaded if you're disassembling it and in a safe direction right but people will say that and be like oh it's so unsafe because you have to pull the trigger and it's like okay (laughs) how is that unsafe right so i don't know um i I think that's an interesting kind of just an art uh, you know a discussion to have on on its own kind of responsibility we do have responsibility and again i mean accidents do happen right but i still it makes me wonder i mean why did this guy's holstered gun get dropped? Like, yeah. you know, so uh, there's, there was a story with the P320. There was an officer, I think in Dallas or somewhere in Texas that was struck by a bullet from a P320 that was discharged when they dropped the holstered firearm in, you know, it's, it's attached to a duty belt. So they, so this, is an, this is a cop that is obviously off duty, whether going on duty or getting off duty it uh, doesn't really matter, but they've got their duty belt with their holstered gun and they got all this other gear and they got out to the car and like dropped it. Right. Well, why are we doing that? Why are we dropping that? You know what I mean? So, so there, I, I do think there is some amount of personal responsibility. Absolutely. Like we shouldn't ever intentionally really uh, drop a, well, okay. Again, I've done it and, I, and I've demonstrated this by the way, in a controlled environment. Okay, talking about the safety, say of you know, like I, I think I've always done it with my Glocks, but uh, you know, people wonder about. So we do the demonstration. What is the purpose of the demonstration? The purpose of the demonstration is to show that hey, you can carry chambered in your gun in your holster, and it's safe to do so. Because so the way we overcome that is I'll say, look, here's how the gun is designed. This is what's supposed to prevent this from being able to fire unless the finger or something is placed on the trigger and it's pulled to the rear. Uh, and, and I have again, in a controlled environment demonstrated this and dropped, dropped a gun. Okay. With it pointed safe direction. Um, anyway, that's beside the point, but, uh, we shouldn't be in the habit of dropping guns, especially intentionally. And, uh, yeah, but, At the same time, if our guns get better and manufacturers get better and designs get better, that's a win too. 
Absolutely. All righty. We've got to wrap it up. It's been, I just realized like it's been a long episode, but we had a lot to talk about. We haven't talked about news in a while. So that's a wrap on the stories today. Um, we do want to make sure we do our giveaway too. So we can't forget that as I'm getting the giveaway prepped, uh, just a reminder that today's episode made possible and brought to you by our peel and stick uh, uh, hol- or holsters, targets, <laughs> the adhesive reactive targets at concealedcarry.com. Uh, we, we don't make them in-house, but but they are made for us and we sell them and they're branded with our brand on them. So the concealedcarry.com adhesive reactive targets, uh, you peel and stick, they work awesome. The adhesive's great. Go pick up a set of those, a pack, whatever. Go to concealedcarry.com forward slash July heat and use the coupon code July heat to buy them, save 20%. Also check out our classes uh, in a variety of locations across all, across the country. Go to class.concealedcarry.com, see our full schedule, find a class near you. You can filter those by location, by state, and uh, hopefully find a class near you and get out there and take some training. All right, and if you can come join Jacob and myself uh, on our range here in Colorado in the next month or two, we'd love to have you in one of those classes. All righty, so now it's time to announce the giveaway winner of the Bump of the Night DVD. So let's see here. I don't have my, by the way, Michael, no, it is not our longest podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We've had longer. Um, All right, so I've got everything loaded here, I think. So we need a drum roll. Matthew, give me a drum roll, please. We're going to pick a winner. That was a good drum roll. (laughs) Isaac H, last name starts with H, as in hotel. Isaac H, you'll be emailed. You are the uh, winner of a Bump of the Night DVD. Congratulations, Isaac. So glad to to have you win. And let me just preview next week's giveaway. I'm actually wearing it here today. Uh, Next week's giveaway, it's it's, uh, live on the uh, podcast prize site. So you can go to concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize. You do not have to be present to win, but it's always more fun to be present. In fact, if Isaac is watching on Facebook today, I I hope he'll let us know. Uh, So this is next week's giveaway, and this is a simple survival paracord bracelet. And it's got 12 feet of paracord woven around it here. And a little buckle there, right? So we can take it apart. But here's what's cool about this thing. So besides the paracord, besides the whistle that's built in, but it also has a fire starter, basically a flint and steel. At risk of lighting the office on fire, I will demonstrate. See that? Cool. There we go. That was a good one. So flint and steel, and plus the uh, the steel part of this uh, is 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 kind of a serrated sort of sharp edge. I mean, it could be used to to cut some things minimally. It's not you know it's not super useful, but but you know it's kind of cool. All right. So we have a little steel thing there. We got a little flint. We can uh, light a fire, use a whistle to call for help, and we got a bunch of paracord we can build a shelter with or do whatever, right? So a cool little survival paracord bracelet, that is next week's giveaway, and we'll give away one of these on this week's Thursday episode. That one is for Facebook Live attendees, but uh, for anybody, including if you are not able to be present to win, then you just need to go to concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize fill out a little information and get signed up just like that. And you could be like Isaac and win. So with that, we're going to let you go. Matthew, thanks so much, sir. Thank you, sir. And thanks everyone for listening. Yeah. 
Take care. Be safe out there, folks. And a reminder, train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.